you have to learn. If you meet somebody and they've set up a SaaS business and within two years, they had perfect product market fit and they managed to sell it for a lot of money. And let's say it was a reasonably easy ride, then either stay out of the business. But if you're going to get back in again, then just be prepared that at some point this thing is going to kick the living shit out of you. Hey guys, welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media. And like always, I will be your host and bartender today. Well, I am joined by Norman Crowley today. He is calling in from Dublin, Ireland. And man, does he have an epic story to tell. Norman is the CEO of Cool Planet Group, but he is the pure definition of a serial entrepreneur. Norman is going to take us through the journey of a company that almost sold for $1 billion with a B dollars that fell through at the stock market crash uh, at literally hours before the deal was to go through. But in true Norman fashion, he rebounded and eventually sold the company for $500 million. Norman's going to talk about when you know it's time to sell your company and when you should not and lessons learned, and how you can potentially bounce back if this maybe happened to you at the onset of the pandemic. So grab a drink and join me as I speak with Norman Crowley, CEO of Cool Planet Group. Hey, Norman, welcome to SAS Half Full. Thanks for joining me. We have SaaS founders, SaaS marketers of all growth stages that listen to this podcast, and thank you all for listening. So today's topic is one that I think will be super compelling to those of you who have uh, not yet reached an exit through acquisition or IPO, because we are going to be diving into, which I've learned now is it is a 13-year-old story, but it is one that the lessons will still hold true. How Norman's company, Inspired Gaming Group, which is the world's largest server-based gaming domain, you guys had a $1 billion acquisition that fell through literally two hours before it was to go through. However, you rebounded and you did eventually sell that company for around $500 million. So we do want to hear that story, but I think more importantly is following up and hearing the advice you'd give to others who are thinking about or facing an acquisition. Norman is a serial entrepreneur and we also want to hear what he's doing now because he's doing some really cool shit that you guys should know about. So Norm, before we dive in, I want to make sure that our listeners get at least a a decent background on you. You can probably hear from my accent that I'm Irish. When I grew up, I guess I grew up on a farm and we didn't have a whole lot of money. And so when I was a kid, we used to watch TV, mainly US TV. And everyone in the US seemed to be very rich in our world. And so I guess I grew up wanting to get out of everything. When I was 13, my dad taught me how to weld. And I just became obsessed with welding and metalwork. And by the time I was 15, I had kind of 10 people working for me doing welding projects for local farmers and builders. And so got the entrepreneurial bug quite early. And by the time I was 20, I had sold that business to a local builder. And that was my first taste of work very hard. And eventually somebody will give you loads of money. And then from the time I was like 12, I also had an obsession with computers and technology. And so I used to write software in my bedroom on a a 48 kilobyte computer. So huge. And so then 
flushed with the success of selling that business for a relatively tiny amount of money, set up a technology company, and that technology company grew. And then we were very lucky that in 1999, a whole lot of telecoms companies around the world were floating, and they all wanted an internet story. And we had kind of pivoted the company around 1997 into the internet because we loved it. So we were lucky enough to sell the business. And I retired at the ripe old age of 28 for about five minutes. Because, you know, you have this idea that when you sell that you can retire at 28. But what you realize very quickly is that all of your mates are still working. And also it's about the work and what you can do with work. It's not really about the money. So what happened then was inspired gaming. So I was in a betting shop one day and I was fascinated that all these slot machines that they had in the betting shops were analog. They weren't digital. And I I said to a friend of mine who worked in one of these betting shops, like, why don't you just connect these things to the internet and download games to them? And he was like, well, if you think it's that easy, why don't you do it? And so we said, okay. And by 2006, we were the global leader in a thing called server-based gaming, which is where the game isn't on the machine. It's actually on effectively the internet or on a server. 2006, we had grown that company like crazy, 300 million in revenue, uh, two and a half thousand people, global business. Uh, We'd floated it on the London Stock Exchange. And it was a kind of hyper successful company. And it was before SaaS, but it had a SaaS model, actually. So we were getting a percentage of the revenue coming from the machines on a monthly basis. And so it was pretty cool. And then in 2008, we continued to expand and an Icelandic hedge fund approached us to buy the business for a billion bucks. A billion dollar acquisition takes a while to close. So we worked through that for most of the year. And then we came up to Christmas and it was going to close. But at the same time, that happened, if you remember, 2008, 2007, but mainly 2008. The world was just falling apart financially. The GFC, global financial crisis, was happening. And the process of closing it was like one of those action movies where all the disaster is happening just behind you and you're running away from it, right? But you're still there and the disaster is happening, but the deal is still there and our deal still looked like it was going to close. And tragically and eventually, the all the threats behind us eventually caught up. And f- famously, what happened was the deal was all done and we were waiting to go to the lawyer's office to sign it. Um, and sell the business for a billion bucks, which at the time was my kind of crowning business achievement. And then we just got a phone call and Lehman's had collapsed. And and basically the buyer just said, no, this is just too much for us. And that was it. And so we went into what every entrepreneur goes through at least 50 times in their life, which is just this dark night of horribleness. But actually, like everything else, we ground it out for about seven or eight months afterwards and eventually sold it for a billion bu- for a half a billion bucks. Well, it's interesting because when the whole world collapsed, and, and I'm air quoting, this probably will only be audio for most for our listeners, but that I would imagine is what many listeners experienced come March of last year. I'm 
positive. I know for a fact that there were deals on the table that when our whole world shut down, so did those deals. And it, it appears that we've rebounded and that we're back into to deal making. However, there are factors beyond any of our control and they don't happen often. I mean, these are big moments in time and big stamps in the history book that you experienced. You mentioned we, and I was curious who your who your team was um, that was taking you through this acquisition. Did you have C-level partners at this time that you had brought in? Were you all first-time sellers? What was that we team? I had a business partner, so we were partners in it. And then we had a C-suite, our COO and CFO and the whole lot. And we were all in it together. And had anyone lived through that before? Not really, no, because it was a very fast-growing startup. And also, I don't really buy into the gray hair argument. I think if people are right for the job, then older doesn't necessarily mean better. I think there are people in their 20s who are amazing entrepreneurs who can equally handle stuff as much as people with gray hair. Sometimes experience helps. Other times, it can just make you jaded and opinionated. Was there a moment in time where you knew in your heart of hearts that this wasn't going to happen? Yeah, just after I hung up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to me about that moment. You hang up the phone as a leader and right? You have this this C-suite around you and you have a business partner. How did you rebound from that? Yeah, for about a minute or two, it just feels like somebody is punching you in the stomach and won't stop. And then the next thing, because we were all friends as well, the next thing you want to do is go to a bar. And we did exactly that because you just, you have to smile at that point and just go, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> you laugh um, to keep from crying. Yeah, you rebound pretty quickly. At the time, I probably didn't have the tools I would now to rebound. Because now we've got multiple companies, we went through a pretty rough patch around the beginning of COVID, but we rebounded like incredibly quickly. If there was an award for rebounding, we would win it on the back of what we did last year. But now we have much better tools, both mentally, physically, kind of financially, we have much better tools. If you don't have the tools, you're just not, you're not geared up for it, right? But like all business, regardless of your scale, is about the ability to rebound and roll with the punches, right? And if you're not getting punched, then you're just not moving fast enough. And so every day is about a challenge and then a response to that challenge. And what we learned from that event in 2008 was that you really need to build up the tools to be more resilient to this kind of thing. And they that's what it's all about. Because expecting not to get punched, then get out of the ring and get a job with a multinational corporation. So walk us through when, once you guys got out of the fetal position and pulled yourselves up off the floor, you still eventually sold the company for quite a bit of coin. What did that look like? Because it, it with a $1 billion deal, it was a investor came to you. So once you realized, okay, we you know, this business can be sold and can be sold for a lot of money, what did that look like? Were you then going out and tapping investors? Did you go on a roadshow? Same situation. Was it investors coming to you? And, and how long did that take? What happened was it went through a horrible kind of six or eight months afterwards because then you've got the global financial crisis. Trading is awful. You got to lay people off. You got to optimize in our case, like we we expanded 
even more globally. We won some major contracts. And then by about August of the year after, so it was Christmas when the deal fell through. But by August, we were the hot we were the hot prom date again, right? We were expanding like crazy, making a lot of money. And so kind of everybody wanted to buy us at that point. But what happened to me was around about June, my life at the time was get up in the morning in Dublin, fly to London, which was headquarters, which is like an hour flight, work there all week. And then every third week, fly to Hong Kong, jump on a private jet, go to eight countries around Hong Kong to visit casinos that we owned. And then every 12th week, fly on to Sydney, to where we had an office and spend another week in Sydney. So just living on a plane, eating crap food, and never ending business meetings, never ending phone calls, never ending stress, uh, away from my family, which is quite young at the time. And then I woke up one day in, in kind of June. And I just said, I want to get out. And I went to my business partner and I said, we should just sell this thing now. Enough's enough. And it had made more money than our wildest dreams anyway. And so we did a mini process ourselves where we talked to three private equity companies and my business partner stayed with the business. And so in hindsight, actually, it was the best thing that ever happened because, and the entrepreneurial journey is like this. You have to learn. If you meet somebody And they've set up a SaaS business and within two years, they had perfect product market fit and they managed to sell it for a lot of money. And let's say it was a reasonably easy ride, then either stay out of the business. But if you're going to get back in again, then just be prepared that at some point this thing is going to kick the living shit out of you. And and I would say that most founders that I talk to have experienced the latter where it just kills you. I mean, and most will say that it, you know, it, this, it was all consuming. It was dark. I mean, there's been books written about it. They are dark, dark days, but if it was easy, everybody would do it. Why that holds true as well. When it came to you whittling down the PE firms that were, would be the best fit for you. What were the criteria that you looked at? Well, back then who would pay the most money? But now it depends. If you're exiting, and I was at that case, then it's what's the best price, you know. But if you're staying with the business, which is most PE relationships, so we concluded a PE investment at the beginning of 2020 for our current group. And that was a very different process and a very different criteria. So we were looking for absolute fit. So we have a we have a financial mission, but more importantly, we have a social mission in this business. And it was who was more aligned with the the combination of the financial and the social mission. And when you're doing that, it's a very different process. You're basically saying, I've got to live with this person for the next five to seven years. So are we emotionally aligned? And so we do a lot of meeting with people and a lot of going to restaurants and talking to them and making sure that, and we're looking for cracks, right? We're looking for something that they say that we just don't like, right? And we're very sensitive to that. So if they say something that doesn't quite gel, then we'll dig into it and dig into it until we're happy that we're aligned. In your case, you hit a point where it was just sort of like enough is enough. Things are suffering. When is the right time? When do you know it's the right time? I mean, obviously if you have this aha moment like you did, but when is the right time to to exit? When's the right time to sell the business? What are some signs, things to look for? Steve Jobs had a great quote on this, and, and it was so true. He said, like, if you look in the mirror in the morning for the seventh day in a row and you don't want to be there, 
then maybe it's time to go. I learned a valuable lesson in the last year, though, about that, which is you might want to go because you're bored. You might want to go because the management team is getting, you don't get along with them anymore. They're not really good enough reasons, right? Because if you're not getting along with your management team, then you hired them. So change them. And if you're bored with the sector, then maybe it's time to go. I was bored in late 2019, 2020, but I discovered after it was for a different reason is that I wasn't hiring senior enough people to do the jobs that I was doing. And what we did was we raised the money, we hired proper senior people to do the job, and the job becomes very exciting again, because you're not just doing what you've done for the last six or seven years. So in my case, I was doing a lot of selling up until late 2019. And I've been doing that for 10 years. And it turned out I wasn't bored with the business. I was just bored with selling. And so we hired some very senior people and they're brilliant at selling, much better than me. And and the business is properly exciting again. And when you said you, you weren't hiring the proper senior people, is that because you weren't ready to and, and you, you felt that you needed to maintain that control and that you were the best person for that job? I think there are a lot of reasons. And, the, and those reasons go very deep about like a lot of the time, you know, there's a cliche that basically says hire people better than you are, right? But there's a lot of reasons why people don't do that. Like if, you, if you're deeply worried that person is going to show you up, like you have to believe that you're good enough to hire the best people because otherwise you don't attract those people. And that's the easiest sentence that'll ever come out of my mouth and the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing, we call it enoughness. You have to look in the mirror and agree that you are enough and you are good enough. And that's not a poncy, like we see in the movies, bang in your chest type thing. You have to deeply understand that you are good enough to attract these people. And then that's back to the tools. You need to then deploy the tools. And if you don't do that, you're always going to think that you're not good enough. Other people are going to smell that off you and they're not going to be attracted to the business. I love that. What do you wish that more founders understood about selling their company? That it's not happily ever after. Um, If you love it and you love doing it and you just want to keep growing it, then why would you sell it? Like as my wife says, there's only so many handbags you can buy and there's only so many cars you can buy. uh, And it's all pretty soulless, to be honest with you. It's about the team and the people and your friends and what you can do as a business. And if you're lucky enough, like we are to work in a mission-led business that wants to solve a big problem, then what the hell are you doing thinking about selling it? If you're selling it because you're sick of the people, you shouldn't have hired them or changed them or fixed the relationship. If you're selling because there aren't enough customers, then figure out why there aren't enough customers. If you're selling because you're not getting enough money out of the business, then restructure it so that you can get enough money out of it. So selling should be a last resort in truth. And then when you sell, it's pretty soulless out there. You kind of go, I'm going to go and sit in the beach somewhere. Guess what? You're going to sit next to some other rich dude. He's bored. You're bored. Move on. I want to flip the question and ask what you wish that more investors understood about founders. That founders are just insecure people who need a lot of help. And I think investors are getting more sophisticated, though. Like, what would happen about 15 years ago is investors would go, this guy's a kid, we need some adult supervision. And then they'd hire some old guy, normally a guy, and and that person would come in, they wouldn't get the business in any way, shape or form, and then the business would just fall apart. 
Whereas I think nowadays people, good investors are very good at understanding founders and very good at working with founders. But there are still 50% of the investment market is still just a mess uh, of people who don't understand what it takes and they just want a quick result. And they're the people in most trouble at the moment because there's just so much competition in the investment community. So if you're not an empathic investor now, uh, and you don't understand the entrepreneurial journey, then you're more fucked than you ever were. And good riddance, to be honest with you. Well, and you're able to say these things with because you've experienced it and you continue your entrepreneurial journey. I do want to understand, is Norman, what's next for you? What do you got going on? Well, what we have going on now is for the last 10 years, we've set up something called Cool Planet Group. And Cool Planet Group is now relatively big. It's 23 countries around the world. And we work on a climate change basically the three things that cause climate change energy transport food and we have divisions disrupting each of those areas so we have an energy efficiency and software as a service business that disrupts the energy sector we have electrify which as the name would suggest works on electric cars and then we have our food division which is a startup that is going to entirely disrupt food For those of you listening in beef producing states in the US, it's going to really mess you up over the next 10 years. And that's coming from a guy who likes a good steak. (laughs) Well, you know that we're based in the Midwest and have many Midwest listeners. So we have a lot of beef production happening in our listening audience here. Soya is dead. Beef is dead. It's all over. And it's going to go the same way as fossil fuels, it's going to go the same way as the gasoline car. Welcome to being a dinosaur if you're in that industry. And thankfully, our business, one of the fastest growing businesses in the world because of that disruption. And all of the numbers, if you're in fossil fuel-based energy, if you're in fossil fuel-based cars, if you're in meat, you're fucked. Um, And if you disagree with that, you're just not looking at the data. And that's our businesses play in that space. And the financial success that we enjoy is because the wind is at our back, right? Uh, It's just pushing us towards all of those things. Well, Norman, I understand that we could not send you a cocktail kit because you are not in the US. So I'm sorry for that. I mean, you wouldn't know it, but I've been drinking a Sauvignon Blanc here. Because it's uh, (laughs) the only way you can get through the day. It's 11 (laughs) o'clock in the morning. And. I always have to remind our new employees when they see me pour a drink or head into a room with a, a wine or a truly that um, this is indeed all for work and I'm staying true to the process. But as we end every show, I ask our guests if they have a signature toast or favorite toast to send us out. Uh, in Ireland, we say schlanta, which is good health. And that's what everybody says here. So that's a good one. Maybe just a quick one. I referred there a couple of times to tools. And then we didn't talk about that. So if you're an entrepreneur, I'll hit you with some obvious things that if you're not doing them, you need to do. And that is, we boil it down to three simple things. You got to eat right, you got to exercise, and you got to figure out some way of keeping your mind calm, which in, in our case is kind of meditation. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're not operating those three things to their absolute maximum, then you're just fucking around. If your diet is shit, but you're really good runner, fix the diet. If you're brilliant at diet and you're brilliant at exercise, but you don't keep your mind calm, then fix it. Figure out a way to fix it. Because this is combat. And 
you got to be combat ready. And that's the one universal truth we've learned over the years. I love that. And I would say that needs to be distilled down into your family as well. The two rules in my house are eat well and sleep well. If you're sleeping well, your mind is inherently calm. Those have been the two rules in my house since my kids were born. So I would suggest that not only to yourself, but then push that down um, into your family as well. And uh, life will be better all around. I will absolutely drink to, I'm not going to try and say it again, which is to good health, but definitely drink to that. Norman, this has been awesome. Very interesting stories, very compelling stories. And hopefully our listeners picked up one or two things here as they're going through their own acquisition and exit journey. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate the time. Thanks again to Norman for joining me on SAS Half Full. I think this episode may earn us our second E rating. You know I love it. Norman was an awesome guest. I hope you guys took away uh, some lessons from his story. And although Norman was not joining me for a drink, we do still offer cocktail kits for our listeners. If you'd like a cocktail kit delivered to your door, simply visit cocktailcourier.com. And if you enter SHF5 at checkout, you'll get five bucks off your order. Guys, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. And until next time, bottoms up. <laughs>